0: A.W. Tozer once said, whenever you see confusion, you can be sure that something is wrong. Disorder in the world implies that something is out of place. Usually at the heart of all disorder, you will find men in rebellion against God. It began in the Garden of Eden and continues to this day. The truth is this world and everyone in it began dying the moment mankind rebelled against God. It's a, a spiritual and physical decay that plagues all of humanity apart from christ a gradual decay that ultimately leads to death Now, of course we know that jesus christ came and changed all of that for those who choose to follow him he leads us out of death and into new life and that eternal boils down to who or what you're choosing to follow that determines where you end up in this life and the next and just to be clear every single one of us is following something Whether we're willing to admit it or not, we all have something that drives us, that motivates us, that inspires us, that captivates us, something that demands our focus and loyalty above everything else. Every one of us is following something, and sadly, uh, in the end, most choose to follow something other than Jesus, according to Jesus, who said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow. And the way is hard. We just skip over that part a lot. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. So what is it the majority of people choose to follow if not Jesus? Well, of course, the answer is themselves. Most people choose to follow self instead of following Christ. In fact, one of the most effective lies ever perpetrated against God's people throughout history has been the idea that as long as you believe in God that means he is your God that's not what the Bible says James the brother of Jesus said you believe that God is one you do well even the demons believe and shudder James two nineteen. and when he said that by the way James was pointing the Jewish believers the Jewish Christians at the time he was pointing them back to the Shema, a Jewish creed in Deuteronomy 6-4, which stresses the importance of monotheism, the belief that there's only one true God, and, as opposed to uh, the Canaanites they were living among who were polytheistic, which meant they believed in many gods. So James says uh, to professing believers, listen, you can believe that there's only one God, and you can believe that that God is Jesus Christ, which, of course, is good, and you should. But you understand, the demons believe that too. So obviously, believing that Jesus Christ is God and Jesus Christ actually being your God are two different things. Which is why when Jesus called his disciples, he didn't say to them, hey, come have a personal relationship with me. Or hey, stranger, uh, come repeat this prayer after me. And then all of a sudden, you'll have a personal relationship with me. No, Jesus never said that. But one after another, after another, after another, he walked up to total strangers. And he said, come, follow me. Why? Because you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following Jesus. Okay, simply believing in God doesn't mean that he is your God. The demons believe that Jesus is God. The difference is they don't follow him. Adam and Eve never stopped believing that God was who he said he was in the Garden of Eden. They believed he was who he said he was the whole time. The problem is they stopped following him. They abandoned their first love and started following the religious teaching of another who changed just enough of God's word to make it plausible, to seem believable, which of course took their focus off of God and put it squarely back on themselves, which ultimately led them straight into open rebellion, open sin against God. So look, before we get to that same point in our own lives, we should be asking ourselves, who am I following? Because whoever or whatever it is you're following, that is your God. So who are you following? And again, the answer to that question for most people is myself, which sadly is just as true for many people who profess to be Christians. It's, it's not that we don't believe in Jesus. We just choose not to follow him. In fact, over the years I've met with a lot of professing believers who have entered into adulterous relationships or who refuse to contribute anything, their time or money or talent to the church, the body of Christ, or they they chase after addictions, or they pursue a career at the expense of their families. I mean, on and on and on the list goes. Listen, in all those years of ministry, I have never heard one of those professing believers, when I ask them about their faith in Christ, what they're doing, and they come to me and talk to me about what they're doing, when I ask them about their faith in Christ, I have yet to have one of them ever say to me, Well, the reason I'm pursuing this relationship outside of my marriage or the reason I don't give to the church or the reason for this addiction or this obsession with my career or whatever is because I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Nope, that hasn't happened yet. In every single case, they've continued to profess faith in Christ while consciously choosing to pursue other paths in life, paths that undeniably led them away from Jesus Christ, away from their first love and into following other things until they chose to rebel against God in his word, living in open sin, open rebellion. It's exactly what we see happening in these letters to the churches in Revelation two and three as we continue to work our way through the book of Revelation where Jesus through the apostle John issues five warnings for the church or what I call five stages of decline for the church which we started looking at uh, last week in chapter two and we'll continue today. It's the progressive decline of the church that happens when we fail, okay, I'm, I'm not talking about lost people out in the world. I'm talking about professing believers when we fail to carefully attend, as John puts it, to the word of God in our lives, just as Adam and Eve did, just as believers in God have been doing ever since. And so in these two chapters, we find this series of warnings for the church, then and now, by the way, which about what happens progressively when we fail to to do that, to carefully attend to God's word. So... The first letter uh, is addressed to the church at Ephesus. We looked at this last week. People who abandoned their first love, Jesus Christ and his people. That's where it always starts. When we fail to carefully attend to God's word, eventually you will abandon your first love, which naturally progresses to the church at Pergamum, who then begin following false teaching, and we covered those two stages again, uh, those two stages of decline, or those two warnings last week, which leads us to the church at Thyatira, as we're gonna see today who've begun living in open rebellion, which left unchecked leads to the church at Sardis, who Jesus says have declined to the point they're spiritually dying. We're going to look at those two today. And and ultimately, uh, it leads to the church at Laodicea who are becoming an apostate church, worthless in the eyes of the Lord, who warns if they don't repent and turn from their ways that he's going to spit them out of his mouth. It's a series of five increasingly urgent and increasingly intense warnings about what happens to professing believers progressively when we fail to carefully attend to God's word in our lives. And as we saw last week, these letters, uh, all of them were to be delivered to and read to all of the churches, including all of the churches today. So we're gonna jump back in to these letters where we left off last week at uh, the church at Thyatira, uh, who were beginning to openly rebel against God because they didn't carefully attend to God's word. And so at some point, they had abandoned their first love, Jesus Christ and his people, which opened them up to false teaching and ultimately into rebellion, which we're gonna see as we read it. So let's pick the story back up there where we left off at Revelation 2, and we'll begin with verse 18 to the end of the chapter. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not tolerated, excuse me, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and, the, and I will rule, he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So just so there's no mistake uh, who this letter is coming from, he starts out with the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Both descriptions mirroring Daniel's great vision of the last days in chapter 10 of his book where the celestial being that appeared to Daniel had eyes like flaming torches and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, Daniel 10.6. So, so after reintroducing himself here, Jesus issues his third warning, this one directed to the church at Thyatira. Uh, if you were following the overland route from Pergamum to Sardis, which we'll look at next, Travelers would head eastward along the south bank of the Caicos River, turn southward over a low-lying range of hills and then descend into the broad and fertile valley of the Lycus River. It was about a 40-mile journey that would take them just across the Mysian border to the city of Thyatira situated on the south bank of the Lycus. It was founded by Seleucus I as a military outpost to guard one of the approaches to his empire. And yet it had no natural fortifications. Uh, Meaning it was a really hard place to defend. And so in 190 BC, the city fell to the Romans and became the uh, first. It was part of the kingdom of Pergamum and then later the province of Asia. And under the stability of Roman rule, Thyatira was destined uh, for growth and prosperity as a center for manufacturing and marketing. And sure enough, that's what happened. It developed into an economic hub of a large number of prosperous Uh, trade guilds. I was looking at some of the archaeological discoveries. They've unearthed inscriptions that describe wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smiths. And of course, uh, we know in Acts 16, 14, we meet a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. So uh, this was a manufacturing city extraordinaire. And there was a guild for every trade, which meant the people involved in any economic activity there, which was pretty much everyone, of course, belonged to one guild or another, which was great for economic prosperity, but not so much for the local Christians because all of the guilds had patron deities assigned to them, patron gods that represented, uh, uh, pagan gods that represented each guild. And so the guild members were expected to pay homage To their pagan gods at the regular guild meetings which were these festive occasions that would always include a common meal dedicated to the guild's patron deity which of course meant you were eating food sacrificed to idols followed by all manner of immoral behavior it was basically a giant pagan party every time they met and yet refusing to participate would get you kicked out of the guilds which of course meant economic ostracism you'd lose your livelihood So enter Jezebel, a prominent woman who was probably already a member of the church, the Christian religious establishment, who, like her Old Testament counterpart, was influencing the people of God to forsake their loyalty to God by promoting a tolerance toward and even involvement in these pagan practices. Why? Because, of course, she didn't want to lose her livelihood either. Many of the church members were all too eager to accept her teaching. The fact is... uh, Early Christians were very familiar with godly prophetesses. We see that in Acts 2.17 and 18, in Acts 21.9, 1 Corinthians 11.5, as well as other places. We have extra biblical sources. One is the early mid-second century writings that talk about a first-century prophetess named Ammia in the Asian church in Philadelphia. So the fact is both pagan and Jewish religion in Asia had a long history of both respecting and following female prophetic figures godly women okay so this this Jezebel was uh, well received by many in the church because she was claiming to be a prophetess who could teach them deep things things they maybe didn't already know which according to Jesus were deep things of Satan but they didn't know that because she was presenting herself as a prophetess of God and saying the very things that many of the Christian businessmen wanted to hear she was teaching them to take part in the trade guild celebrations including the pagan meals and the immorality that followed so they wouldn't have to give up their economic and social standing in the city. I mean it was like, "Hey, I've read the scriptures. Right? It's okay to eat that food. After all, the Bible says there's only one God, right?" Well, so that food isn't actually dedicated to another god because there is no other god. I mean, that sounds Actually pretty reasonable, doesn't it? Or right, hey guys, it's okay to take part in those celebrations. After all, the Bible says there's, there's freedom in Christ, right? So you don't have to give up your livelihood or social standing in the community. As long as you believe in Jesus, you have the freedom to live however you feel you need to. It seems very plausible, very reasonable. So many of the Christians there were all too eager to follow her and her teachings instead of Jesus Christ and his teachings because she was twisting the scriptures just enough to seem plausible, believable. It's the same thing the serpent did to Adam and Eve in Genesis, and he's been doing it through his followers ever since. And so after commending them for their love and faith and service and patient endurance, which, by the way, means these are believers who are active in the church, Jesus says to these same people, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And it may not have been a formal teaching like she came in with a new religion. No, it's just suggesting things to people that sound good, plausible, believable, based on scripture, twisted just enough to buy the the story. It's the epitome of someone who believes in Jesus and his teachings while actually following someone else and their teachings. But listen, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following jesus and so here's the problem with all this because it's one thing to struggle with sin and to know that you're struggling with sin we all struggle with sin at times in our lives right then at least we know there's repentance and restoration available to us but when you follow someone who teaches a false doctrine a watered down version of the gospel long enough it's really easy to begin to conflate the two to believe the the false gospel you're following is functionally the same as the one you say you believe in, the one that Jesus and the apostles taught, to the degree that people can and often do believe wholeheartedly that they are following Jesus, while at the very same time participating in open sin against him and his word. Scholar Robert Mounts, is commenting on this Jezebel, he said it is questionable whether her teaching was in any sense formal. It may only have taken the form of popular persuasion built upon unexamined assumptions. This is what happens when you don't carefully attend to the word of God in your own life. You don't actually know what it says because you never read it. And someone comes along and tells you their version of what it says. And it sounds good. It sounds plausible, believable. It's easy to follow that person based on unexamined assumptions. In any case, he says, it had seduced a considerable number of believers into a fatal compromise with paganism, and thus Jesus issues his third warning of five. You'll remember the first two from part one of this sermon. Today's part two of the same sermon, and then we'll get to part three next. Uh, so he warned the churches, point one, if you were here, was uh, against abandoning your first love, which we, f- we find in the church at Ephesus, because doing so inevitably leads to the second stage of decline for the church. His second warning against following false teaching, that was point number two, which is what was happening uh, in the church at Pergamum which left unchecked leads to the third warning to the churches, which we find here in our text today, open rebellion. That's point number three, open sin against God and his word by people who say they're followers of Christ. Exactly what was happening at Thyatira, because in practice they followed the false teaching of Jezebel instead of carefully attending to the word of God themselves. Look, if they had truly known... What God's word said by carefully attending to it, they never would have followed the teachings of false prophetess who was leading them away from Christ in the church. And of course, we'd like to think today that we'd never do that either. I've lost count of how many professing Christians I've known who live with and have intimate relations with other people out of wedlock. People they're not married to, and yet at the same time, they don't see any problem with that. Like somehow the commands in Hebrews 13.4 and 1 Corinthians 7.2 and 1 Corinthians seven eight and 9. About 20 other places in scripture that command us to reserve sexual intimacy to within the confines of marriage. Somehow that doesn't apply to us today. That it's okay to live as if we're married even if we're not. If you would told me just a few years ago that I would know as many professing Christians as I do today who support abortion in our country. I never would have believed you. That somehow Exodus twenty thirteen and Genesis one twenty-seven and Psalm one twenty-seven three through five and Psalm 139 13 through 16 and Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, and too many others to name don't apply to us today. That it's okay to sacrifice our children on the altar of personal comfort and security. still haven't gotten over the number of people who have left the church over the years because there were too many other people in the church who didn't look like them or act like them as if Galatians 3.28 and John 7.24 and John 13.34 and James 2.9 and too many others to mention don't apply to us today. Listen, the sheer number of professing Christians who leave their husbands or wives to pursue other relationships or other things that they're more interested in, in direct rebellion against God's word, and yet believe they're justified in what they're doing. It is staggering. Look, I understand, I hope you know, I understand that we all have battles that we face. We all struggle with sin at times in our lives. The Bible's actually clear about that too. I hope you understand, I'm not trying to beat anyone over the head who's wrestling against sin and knows it. In fact, you know what? That is actually a part of the process of discipleship. We recognize our own failings and commit to repentance and accountability with others who help us work through it and move past it, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. No, this warning to the church in Revelation is a warning to Christians who are openly living in sin and yet don't call it sin because they don't believe it is sin. Even though the Bible clearly calls it sin. This is living in open rebellion against God and His Word and the warning is clear. Without repentance, there will be a heavy price to pay. Why? To bring us back to a place of repentance. Repentance. All of this, you understand, as hard as this is for us to hear, it's all motivated by God's love for his church, for you. But that doesn't mean it will be easy. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 14? The gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. That leads to life and those who find it are few. So I'll just tell you, I would rather get to a place of repentance on my own than to have God take me there. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. He's talking about Jezebel. I gave her time to repent. He loves her too. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead because she refused to repent, and all the churches will know that I am he, who search his mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works he's writing this to the church don't take my word for it take his in fact this is how we we get into these predicaments to begin with we say we follow Jesus and his teachings when in practice we follow other people and their teachings their personal take on what the Bible says listen don't just read some book or watch some video or listen to some podcast of someone giving you their version of what God's word says and then follow it. No. Don't draw conclusions about what living for God looks like based only on what you grew up being told to believe. No. Okay, don't just listen to someone's preaching you like, including mine, and decide you know all about how God wants you to live your life. No, pick up the Bible and read it for yourself just read what it says. I mean, are some things in here difficult to understand? Sure. Do some things need clarification by understanding the context and the original language and the circumstances at the time for certain, right? Does it help to read books and watch videos and listen to podcasts and sermons to help you understand it better? Well, you bet it does. But I'm telling you, if that's all you ever do, without actually picking it up and reading it for yourself, you will end up following whatever version of it suits you best based on whoever you happen to be listening to at the time. And the problem with that is, none of us preachers or teachers or commentators or social media influencers or authors or popular figures are God. No, we are all fallible, corrupted, inadequate human beings and worse yet some with evil intent bent on leading you away from Christ and his word so listen before you base your manner of living and personal perspectives on what other people say about the Bible why don't you just pick one up first and see what it says for yourself you never know it might just change how you're living your life it's supposed to I saw a quote recently that said, if the Bible calls it a sin, your opinion doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following Jesus. Let's finish our story for today. Chapter three, verses one through six, and we'll stop there and then we'll finish next time. Chapter three, verses one through six. and To the angel of the church in Sardis right? the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Founded about 1200 BC, situated some 30 to 40 miles southeast of Thyatira, Sardis was at one time one of the most glorious and ancient cities in all of Asia. In its heyday, it was nearly impregnable Uh, from a military standpoint it was a stronghold a fearsome military power that almost never lost a battle. The Acropolis with its uh, these perpendicular rock walls rising 1,500 feet above the lower valley on all sides except the south side was essentially inaccessible and so it provided a natural citadel a natural stronghold uh, up on a hill. It was also a place of great wealth through commerce and trade. In fact Uh, legend says that Midas left his gold in the springs of Pactolus that ran through the city. The river there had uh, had gold dust running through it. And in John's day, the civic structures included a theater, a stadium, a central marble road, uh, multiple temples, in particular a monumental temple of Artemis. Uh, All of that splendor, however, lay in the past at the time this was written because twice in its history, Sardis had been sacked in five 47, 46 BC by Cyrus II and then in 214 BC by Antiochus III when the watchmen on the walls failed to detect the enemy army sneaking up its supposedly impregnable cliffs and walls. They were climbing the walls. But these guards, the city had become comfortable, relaxed, lethargic even about the threats around them. And so although in the sixth century BC, Sardis was one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world by the Roman period, uh, when this was written, it had declined to the point that Ramsey described it as a relic of the period of barbaric warfare, which lived rather on its ancient prestige than on its suitability to present conditions. And so although Sardis maintained a reputation as a great city, it had a great reputation from its height of power. At the time this was written, there was little more about it that was actually great than its reputation, its ancient name. The city in general was living off a former but no longer existing fame. And interestingly, the same attitude had infected the church. And so as the city went, so went the church in more ways than one. Sardis had a significant and powerful Jewish community. In fact, when they later built a new synagogue next to the city gymnasium, which was a center of pagan Greek culture, and they were permitted to build this massive synagogue about the length of a football field, the largest in antiquity, There's no opposition from the government or toward the Christian churches, which was in stark contrast to the churches certainly in Smyrna and Philadelphia. And so in Sardis, Jesus' followers were not only able to coexist peacefully with the synagogue community, but just the fact that there's no persecution against Christians even mentioned here in such a major city is significant. It reflects the, the secure position the church was in. Again, not only with the Jewish community, but with the local Roman pagan government. I mean, it it sounds great. Sounds a lot like the church here. I mean, just, it's a blessing. We're not being persecuted. It's awfully comfortable. But what happened in Sardis is the, the church had grown comfortable and lethargic and even apathetic. And as a result, Jesus says it's dying spiritually. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. By the way, when he says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, unlike the opening to these other churches and these letters, this is not a commendation. No, Jesus is saying, I'm well aware of your great reputation. The problem is that's all it is, a reputation without any substance. You may look good on the outside, But the truth is, you're dead on the inside. Now immediately in verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So clearly, there's still hope, right? As with all of the churches in these letters, there's an opportunity to repent and turn things around. Thank God, as long as we have breath in our lungs, there's hope for us. So the church in Sardis, it's in a deep spiritual coma, approaching death, but not yet beyond. Christ summons to wake up before it's too late, before judgment comes. For if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. and You will not know what hour I will come against you. He's not writing this to lost people out in the world. He's writing it to the church. Yet to those who respond righteously to this warning, he says the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, which is comforting. It's interesting in a way. It's an unsettling promise that I will never (laughs) blot his name out of the book of life because it suggests the averse, the opposite, that there will be those whose names are blotted out of the book of life which of course is mentioned in several other places in scripture including Exodus 32, 32 and 33 and Psalm 69, 28 among others. The point being, there's an urgency and a severity to this warning because the church is in the throes of death, spiritual death. The majority of them had so fully compromised with the culture, so completely come to terms with its pagan environment that although it still had the outward appearance of life, it was almost Christian in name only it was spiritually dying this is the fourth warning to the church the fact that it looked healthy but it wasn't healthy it was anything but healthy it was in fact dying it had the appearance of abundant life while actually producing nothing just like the fig tree in Mark 11 a tree that had leaves but no fruit It's a story that Jesus uses to teach his followers that there's much more to being a Christian to actually following Jesus than just appearances, than just saying you believe it, okay? The church at Sardis had become so complacent about their faith and so comfortable with the secular culture around them, they forgot why they were put there to begin with, to make disciples and reach the lost. So Jesus issues a wake-up call to a church that is spiritually dying because he loves them and us. And you understand, we're not talking about earning your salvation, right? Becoming a Christian requires no work at all. No striving, no works, no good deeds, no holy living. No, we are saved by God's grace through our faith alone. We certainly see that with the thief on the cross right next to Jesus in Luke 23. Salvation is a gift that we cannot earn and do not deserve. It is a free gift from God to us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. He meets us right then and there in the middle of our mess with a gift of salvation. Becoming a Christian requires no work at all. Living a Christian life, a Christ-like life, one that honors Jesus where you're actually following him, Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience that takes a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice and a lot of careful tending to his word in your life, and I still don't get it right. If you plant an apple seed, a tree may be born there out of that seed, but if you never cultivate... If you never prune or fertilize or water or protect that tree, if you become apathetic about the health of that tree and the threats around it, I'm telling you, it isn't going to make it very long. And if it does survive, it will either produce unhealthy fruit or no fruit at all. It doesn't take much to plant a tree, but it takes constant tending to grow a tree into health and maturity until it produces healthy fruit. It always amazes me. I, I have we call it our little micro farm at our house. And we have animals and gardens and things. It amazes me how you can put so much time and effort and money and resources into keeping one plant healthy and all the rest of your time and money and resource and effort into killing the things around it that want to choke the life out of it. And those things thrive. And the thing you're trying to grow is just struggling to make it. There's a sermon in there somewhere, man. It doesn't take much to plant a tree, okay? It takes constant tending to grow a tree into health and maturity until it produces healthy fruit. Listen, the reason an apple tree produces apples is not to feed itself, right? The apple tree doesn't consume its own apples. No, the reason an apple tree produces apples is for the health of those around it, those who need that fruit to grow and become healthy themselves. So producing apples is not what makes the tree healthy. No, producing apples is the sign that the tree is healthy. And it's helping others become healthy as well. Okay, you don't produce spiritual fruit in your life to make yourself healthy. No, you produce spiritual fruit to make others healthy because they need that fruit that you produce to grow and become healthy themselves. Look, when the church becomes complacent about its relationship with Christ and his word as it did at Sardis, when you stop carefully attending to his word in your life, your spiritual growth stops. And when you stop growing spiritually, you stop producing spiritual fruit. And I'm just telling you, as far as Jesus was concerned, there was nothing worse than someone who claimed to be a follower of God and yet produced no spiritual fruit in their lives. Certainly what we see here in this fourth warning to the church based on the judgment that Jesus uh, promises in verse 3 here in Revelation and that he acts out in chapter 11 of Mark's gospel, the story of the fig tree, where in verse 12 Mark says that one day while Jesus was walking with his disciples from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs he said to it may no one ever eat fruit from you again and his disciples heard it and then verse 20 says as they passed by in the morning they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots just to be clear jesus wasn't mistaken about the timing of the fig season right he knew when figs would normally grow but just as any other fruit bearing plant can sometimes produce early or late from the regular growing season this particular fig tree was in leaf meaning it was full of leaves and when fig trees are full of leaves, they're supposed to be full of figs. That's how you know it's time to pick them. And yet this particular fig tree was all talk and no action. It's false advertising. It was full of fig leaves without any figs. And so as far as Jesus was concerned, no matter how good the tree may have looked on the outside, no matter how healthy it may have appeared to be at its core, it was worthless. Dead because it failed to do what it was put on this earth to do. Fig trees exist to produce figs. Not not just a bunch of leaves. And of course, it's an obvious metaphor for those who claim to be full of the spirit of Christ, and yet nothing of Christ actually ever comes out of their lives. They produce no spiritual fruit, they're full of leaves. They look healthy, but that's it, it's just leaves. They believe in Jesus but they're not actually following him. They say all the right things, attend the church, maybe even participate in some of the activities of the ministry, but at the end of the day, all they have is leaves. Every appearance of being a follower of Christ without any actual fruit. It's exactly what had become of much of the church in Sardis and what is becoming of much of the church today. And it's not because we're incapable of producing fruit. No, the problem is we've become content with the leaves. Complacent, because everything looks healthy. So why bother putting in all of the work to actually produce fruit? Well, here's why, and listen, this is the part we really need to pay attention to. Jesus didn't curse the fig tree because it had no figs. No, there were fig trees all around him that had no figs because it wasn't fig season. Yet he wasn't going around cursing all of the other fig trees that had no figs. Now, you understand, he cursed that particular fig tree because it was full of leaves. It was representing itself as a tree full of fruit when in fact it had none, and because of that false pretense, Jesus cursed that tree. In doing so, by the way, he performed not only the only destructive miracle of his entire ministry on earth, but he was issuing a sober warning to all who would listen of just how serious of an offense it is to God for Christians to have the appearance of fruit without the fruit itself. It's like saying you believe in Jesus without actually following him. But you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following Jesus. And so he says, if you, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. God help us. This was written to the church. Okay, it's not enough for us to look good. It's not enough for us to look healthy. It's not enough for us to look vibrant. It's not enough for us to look like Christians or to say we believe, no, we have to choose to follow him by carefully attending to his word, by doing what it says. Why, because you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following Jesus. So if you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. In other words, he becomes dull of hearing or seeing but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, the one who puts in the time and the effort and the hard learning and the hard work, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing, James 1, 22 through 25. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew seven fourteen: The gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. It's hard. The way that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Because you cannot have a relationship with Jesus if you're not following Jesus. He couldn't have been any clearer about it. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. He who has an ear, Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray.